Yeah, Father, I thank you. I thank you for all your blessings. I pray that you will speak to each of us through your Holy Spirit this morning, that we'll not only just hear, but we'll apply. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so for those of you who don't know me yet, I'm Mark. I'm the senior leader here, and uh, I get the privilege of talking to you guys this morning. Uh, and we're at part three of a series, but don't worry, because I'm going to give you a quick recap on the first two, if you've missed either of them. Uh, and we're talking about vision, vision for your own life, but also our vision as a church, what we can do together. And I started off with this statement, and it's a really powerful statement, that everyone ends up somewhere in life, but only a few people end up somewhere on purpose. And that every church tries to do good things, but only a few churches achieve their purpose. And, and I said this, that if we have a clear vision, and then we have the courage to follow through on that vision, then in our own personal lives, it dramatically increases the chances that we get to the end of our life and we, we say, I did it, I'm satisfied, I succeeded. And for the church and your role and part of the church of Jesus, it makes a big difference too. So with a clear vision and the courage to follow through on that vision, it dramatically increases our chances of getting to heaven and Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and that's, that's, that's a real uh, challenge for each of us because it's easy to lose sight of where you intend to get to. And last week, I, I talked about how Jesus gave us a mission as a church, and he summed that mission up as go and make disciples. And that, that discipleship is to teach people how to love him with everything they've got and to love others like they love themselves. And finally, that he said this, that love one another. By that, the people who are not, do not yet know Jesus will work out that you are really Jesus' disciples. So he gave us this big challenge, and that's the, that's the things that we are supposed to measure our success or failure with as a church. Those three things. How, how well are we doing on those things? And so what I talked about last week that is that there's this relentless gravitational pull that exists in every church that if we don't push back and resist, actually causes us to move more and more to doing things just for insiders who are already here. And the longer that that gravitational pull exists, the smaller and smaller and longer lasting and longer being around group of insiders we're doing things just for a few people. And, and I related a story, a really sad story of a church that we were part of years ago that, that didn't have that, that vision for outside and, and just got smaller and smaller and just could not see what the issue was. And the issue was that it was focusing just on a small group of people who were just getting older and older and it had no vision for outside. So that's where we got to last week. And... Uh, I'm going to follow that on this week with something that you've probably done. 
worrying now, aren't you? Something that you've probably done. And you've probably done this repeatedly. Uh, it's something that you actually experience most days. It might even be something you've thought about trying to change, but you can't figure out how. And it's something that exists in nearly every home. It's something that exists in nearly every office. It's something that exists in nearly every school. And it's something that exists in nearly every church. And it's a principle. And I want to introduce you to this principle this morning. Because it's a really important principle. And it's, and it's something we often can't see and don't realize. And here's the name of the principle. Now that it's there. Now that it's there. It's the now that it's there principle. And, and I'll unpack that for you in a minute. But first year, I want to tell you who originated this principle. Somebody you've probably all heard of. A guy, a little Belgian detective called Hercule Poirot. And it's in one of his stories called Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. So I guess he didn't originate it. The writer originated it. And what happens in this story is running through the story that obviously in the, in the, you know, one of these mansion houses cut off by snow as they always are and those sort of things. And they're decorating the Christmas tree. And um, Hercule Poirot's sidekick, who isn't Hastings in this one, it's a, it's a detective called Catchpool. Catchpool is kind of like decorating the Christmas tree. He's, he's taking it on as his project. And they have something that always has to go in the middle of the Christmas tree. And the rest of the, the, the family and the people who are staying there keep having to find this thing and put it back on the Christmas tree because Catchpool keeps taking it off. And he's saying, but nothing looks right with that. Nothing looks right. I just can't get it to work. I just can't get it. I just can't get the right balance. I can't get the lights to look right. There's a big hole in the middle. And they say, but that's how we do it here. And everything has to work around this one thing that's gone in the middle of the Christmas tree. And, and Catchpool asks this question, and Poirot asks this question later. Why... How did it get that you always had to have that in the middle of the tree? And absolutely nobody can remember. They've just always done it that way. And this principle of now that it's there, we just had it in our house. You've probably got one in your house at the moment, which is the box that brought something in that you take the stuff out of the box and then sits in your hallway for days and everybody walks around the box. We, we have this little system in our house where um, we, we put, if stuff's going up to the top floor, we put stuff on the stairs, then the next person who goes up can take it up. And what happens? It's there for days. We just walk past it all the time because it's there, isn't it? It's there. And you've probably got some things on your work surface at home, appliances or boxes, and you can't remember how they got there and you wish they weren't there because you, you don't have the space you need, but... You can't put them in the cupboard because now there's something there that shouldn't be there. 
And, you know, sometimes it's now that it's there can be actually an absence of something. So an absence, we, we have this, we, we're having a little problem, which it basically needs me to apply myself, but now that it's there, it doesn't bother me, is that some of the lights down one end of our kitchen haven't, they, they died ages ago. And it requires me to order them and then put them in. So there's absence of light down the bottom end of our kitchen. So what do we do to solve this problem? We put the side lights on and we never solve the problem because now that it's there, now that we're not doing that, it's not bothering us. And so the now that it's there thing can be something you're working around, but it can also be an absence of something that should be there to make things better. It would be so much nicer if I fixed those lights. But it works with the side lights, so I don't. Now, here's the thing about these now that it's theirs. Now that it's theirs, it's a little known fact, but now that it's theirs, breed. They multiply. And for churches, post-lockdown has been a breeding ground for now that it's theirs. Why, 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 what do I mean that? Well, when we were kind of transitioning back, all these churches all across the nations, we had to do things to get things to work. And there were certain things we couldn't do that we wanted to do. And so because things didn't fall over, we worked around all those temporary fixes. And we, we, we carried on with those temporary fixes until we stopped noticing they were temporary fixes. And they became, this is how we do things here. They became now that it's theirs. And nobody really planned it that way. They were just something that we did and, and then didn't change back or didn't uh, move on from. It was never planned. It's not the best but it could be worse. And it would be, you know, when, as, when we get together as pastors, we, we talk about stuff that's kind of not like it was when we did things really well, or five years ago, or whatever. And it's really easy when you're, you're sat there, and it may be easy for you guys while you sat here, is you kind of think, well, that's not the case in our church. Well, here's a little exercise we could do. We could think what the church looked like before lockdown, the things that we did to make things really well and do things really well. And remember, God gave us that word at the start of the year, what you do, do it well. In all that you do, do all things well. And that's why we've, we've changed some things. And I, I, you know, feedback that I've been receiving is that it's really welcome. And you guys are are loving some of the changes. It's making stuff better. Here's the question. Okay, how do we find out if it exists in our church? We ask this question. Is the area of church in which you serve better or worse than it was five years ago? 
And if you're struggling with that, and if you're like a long-term faith lifer, then ask yourself, do things flow as smoothly as when we were in the sixth form center? Is it, is it, is it as nice an environment that we, we are creating for people? Do guests feel as welcome as they did when we were there? Is it obvious what we're doing and why we're trying to do it? And so if we think long enough, I think that in every church we would find several, now that it's theirs, hiding and waiting to breed. So I want you all to go on and now that it's their hunt in the next few weeks and say, what is it that we are working around? What is it that just because stuff hasn't fallen over, we're accepting. And, and, and to think about that. Now, there's a, there's a guy who uh, does a lot of research into organizations and systems. He's one of these boffins that comes from some very famous university in the US. And he studies organizations. And he, he's got a, this, this quote which um, is so... Insightful. He's a guy called Posner, if you want to know his name. I don't know him. Probably a nice guy. He's called Posner, anyway. And this is what he said. Any system will unconsciously, so nobody's thinking about it, any system will unconsciously conspire to maintain the status quo and prevent change and improvement. Now, when we think about that, it's easy to think, well, this is a people problem. People just aren't stepping up to the mark or whatever. And there might, might be some element of that. We all have to test our, our, ourselves in that. But it's not always a people problem. In fact, it's generally not a people problem. It's generally a group of people problem in that it's more complicated. Every church has its way of doing things. Every church has a, has a way of doing things. And for the most part, that way of doing things keeps the system working. It keeps going. And the, the other side of that coin is it means that if you want to change anything or try and make something better, that can be seen as risky. It can be seen as kind of an interruption to this is how we do things here. This is our way, so that's why we do it, because this is our way. And, and my mum had a phrase for this, and I'm sure you've all got a phrase for it, which is, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So, so why should we bother about this? If, if nothing's fallen over and it's not been a disaster, why should we bother and try and make anything better? That's the big question, isn't it? Why, now that it's there, why don't we just leave it there? Now that it's not here, why don't we just leave it not here? And it's a good question, isn't it? If it's not broke, don't fix it. Why would you want to fix it? Well, here's a few thoughts. We can't always tell if something is broke. We, 
the more insider focused, as opposed to having a vision for reaching those outside the church, the more insider focused a church becomes, the less it can see what it could do better. Remember that, that quote? Every system will unconsciously conspire to maintain the status quo and prevent change and improvement. So in a church, there's a system that somehow exists uh, is, and is the sum total of all our interactions, and we won't always be able to see what's broke. Nor will we necessarily appreciate that it could be broke. So we don't fix it. Here's another one. The, le the longer, and I, I, have to, I have to challenge me on this, because when God gave me that word about what we do, we do well, and all that we do, we do all things well, I have to challenge me and go, what, what am I not seeing? What am I not seeing? And, and part of the challenge for me there, and maybe it's a challenge for you, if you're new to the church, you can ignore this bit because you haven't constructed the now that it's there, so you don't have to worry about this. We just need, you just need to actually know we want to do something about the now that it's theirs or the now that it's not theirs. But the longer someone's in church, like me, the less I can see what doesn't work. Because it used to work. But it doesn't anymore. And, and that's the real challenge. Stuff that worked 30 years ago doesn't work. It doesn't help people grow in their relationship with Jesus. It doesn't help people who visit our church to feel like they want to come back to our church. It, it doesn't help people know how to connect in so they know what's the next step for them. It doesn't help in all those things. It used to work, but the world's changed and church has changed and it doesn't work anymore and it's hard to see it. And here's, here's a big challenge to the, if it's not broke, don't fix it. What if we find out it's not broke? Is that, is that the standard that God wants us to follow? The not broke standard? Or maybe he's asking us, even if it's not broke, could you do it better? And in some cases, maybe he's encouraging us to say, you could do it a lot better. So we have to kind of challenge our hearts and, and our, our own, own selves on this. Because there's a perception problem that none of us will realize. So everybody here would not be able to realize if you have this problem. And it's this, you can't see what you can't see. So that's why it takes all of us to see. Because as individuals, we can't see what we can't see. And, and I talked about the, the real challenge to that is that sometimes if you, if you want to try something, it can be seen as risky because it needs a change to the system. And sometimes it can be seen as an interruption to this is the way we do things here and it hasn't fallen over yet. And, and I acknowledge that. I accept that. Sometimes... In order to move forward, it can be expensive. So we have to be willing to pay to do things well. Doing things well costs. So we have to be willing to do that. 
And some, here's the real challenge, because there's no guarantee that what we do will actually improve things. But if we don't try things, we won't find out what works. Here's one, I think. You know, when God said to, to me about this, what we do, we do well. And all that we do, we do all things well. <laughs> and I, I I was feeling particularly, like, grumpy that day. So I, 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 I retorted to our great father in heaven. And this is what I said. But it's not a disaster, is it, God? It's not a disaster. Well, no, it's not. It's great. But it could be better. Because we've done it better. Here's the thing. A disaster isn't something going wrong and one Sunday morning falling over. Disasters can creep up slowly. They don't always happen all at once. That's what happened at church that I was talking about last week. Over the course of 15 years, it went from amazing church to out of existence. Now, let's, I want to dig a bit deeper into this. Because when we talk about now that it's there, and this is the way we do things here, what that tends to do is it tends to drive the decisions that we take. So the facilities and the activities, what you do as a church and where you do it and, and, and so on, are designed around the way things are. And then the budget, the budget that the trustees look at each year, is designed around the way things are unless we decide to do something differently. But generally, it's just like last year, let's assume it goes up 5% or whatever inflation is. And this is what we did last year, and this is what it cost us. But budgets are designed around the way things are. Staff are hired to do things the way we do things here. And, and all of that kind of creates a cumulative effect that maybe we don't want. Because we might not be bothered by the way things are done. So we might not see the need to do anything better. Let me make this statement. This is what I want you to remember. Every church is perfectly designed to get the exact results it's getting. Every church is perfectly designed. So if a church is designed in a certain way, that determines how many people you're going to reach. It determines how the, the, the experience of somebody coming into our church for the first time, it determines it. We are perfectly designed to do what we're doing. Every church is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. So let me help or try and help us and at the same time try and help me just recalibrate my head and and also try and recalibrate us as, faith, as a church and to challenge us. Because I'm going to use a couple of words that are kind of 
they're the kind of words that produce a reaction. So when I use them, just remember, as I said last week, any problem, Cheryl will help you at the end of this talk. Okay, so I might use a couple of words here that cause a reaction. But here's, here's the thing. God is a God who does things well. In, in Genesis, right at the start, you know, when it, it talks about how the world came into being. And, and, and this, this pattern is repeated seven times. So I'll just, I'll just look at it once, okay? And we'll see something here. This is from Genesis chapter one. And it says, then God said, I give you. So he's doing something. He's giving to mankind. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw, some of you know this line because you've heard it lots of times. And God saw what he had made and it was very good. That's how God does things. He does things very good. Now, in, the, in the, the, the language that we translate into English there, that word very means vehemently, intensive, or exceeding. And good means beautiful, pleasant, thriving, and excellent. So God does things intensively, vehemently, exceedingly excellent. That's how God does things. And you can say, all right, okay, well, what, what's that got to do with me? Well, the, 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 you see, the Holy Spirit is at work in you to change you into the image of God, into the image of Jesus. So that's what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to have the same heart as Jesus. We're supposed to care about doing things Vehemently, intensively, exceedingly excellent. Just in case you, you haven't been upset with it yet, it's that word excellent that's probably might upset a few people. Because it's a challenge to us, isn't it? It's a challenge to us. But that's how God thinks. He thinks excellently. And, and sometimes we don't because we can't see what we can't see. Now let me take you to a, a, a good story. It's the story of Daniel. You remember Daniel, lion's den, fought, you know, three of them in a furnace, fourth man coming into all those sort of things. Some of you might remember that from school. Some of you never heard that story before. Anyway, we're not talking about that bit this morning, but it's a good book. And um, so Daniel is a Jew. He comes from uh, the two tribes because by then Israel was originally 12 tribes. Ten of them got conquered by the Assyrians and disappeared and scattered throughout the earth. And two of them continued to exist quite a lot longer because they had some good kings. And eventually, they ignore all God's warnings and they're conquered by Babylon. That, and and the, emperor, the guy that runs Babylon, the emperor of this biggest empire the world has ever seen, is a guy called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar decides it's a really good idea to have a brain drain on Israel. So what he does is he, he sends an order that, he's, that they are to take into captivity all the brightest and best and bring them into the, the, the city of Babylon where they will be trained up 
to help make the empire stronger. And Daniel is one of that group. Okay, so hopefully you're getting the picture. Now, eventually, as comes to everybody, Nebuchadnezzar dies. And he's succeeded by a new kid on the block, his son, and his son's called Belshazzar. And it's going to get a little bit complicated here because we've got two people with similar names. The son is Belshazzar, okay? And he's in, inherited this Babylonian empire. So he's, he's, he's the head on show of the biggest empire the world has ever seen till that time. The most powerful man on earth. And, and what happens to him is he has a very troubling dream. And he has a dream of a hand coming and writing three words on a wall. And he can't get it out of his head. And every time he goes to sleep, he has this dream of this hand writing three words on a wall. And, and so he asks all these clever people, all these, all these counselors, what does it mean? And they go, not a clue. And at some point in the story, Belshazzar's wife comes to him and she says, remember that guy called Daniel? And this is what she says. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, that, that's, that's who Nebuchadnezzar named Belshazzar, okay. Try and follow the story, Belshazzar. Daniel. Daniel has exceptional ability. When you look at what that word means, you could translate it, he's filled with excellence. Daniel is filled with excellence. And he's full with godly knowledge and understanding. So he's excellent, he's knowledgeable, and he understands what's going on. Okay, and so she says, go to Daniel, and he's, he'll know what this dream means, because he knew for your dad. So she, she go, they go to Daniel, they get Daniel, and Belshazzar, not Daniel, but the king, he says, I've heard that you are filled with insight, understanding, some versions translate that excellence because it's the same word as previously. Understanding, excellence, and wisdom. So I've heard you're full of all these things. Now, let me just help you with that. That, that word insight, that means that, that I've heard you shine light on problems. You shine light on problems. You, you can see what is missing when other people can't see what is missing. You can spot the now that it's theirs and now that it's not theirs, if we put it in this language. And then when it uses that word understanding, as I said, that can be translated excellence as well. What the word means is excellence in seeking and solving. It's the same word as used for excellence in all the other verses we're going to look at. They just translate it generally differently. In this. Now, what that is saying is Daniel is super excellent. So if you want, he's super excellent. He just keeps, you know, like when you're writing an essay and you were told to find a different word because you're using the same one too many times. That's what happens here. We just go and like, Daniel is super, super, super excellent. Excellent. He's, he's the excellentest, excellent person that we have. And so that's, that's, that's what's, what's going on. So here comes Daniel. And Daniel, the king tells him what's going on. Daniel comes up and he says to Belshazzar, Here's the problem. You haven't learned the lesson of your father's downfall. He didn't learn it. You saw what happened and you didn't learn it. And now it's going to cost you. 
there's a lesson for us there. We need to learn the lessons that are right in front of us. Here's what he says. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, and yet you didn't humble yourself. And we just follow through. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple. So even though he's giving him bad news, Belshazzar doesn't really understand it because he's thinking, I'm, I'm the emperor of the biggest empire on, on, on planet Earth. What can go wrong? Belshazzar gives the command. Daniel's the one that's interpreted. So he gets clothed with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck. He's made a proclamation concerning him that Daniel should be now the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's kind of cool, isn't it? You are number three in the biggest empire on earth. Remember, he's not even a Babylonian. He's a Jew. And then this happens. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That's a bit unfortunate, isn't it, when you've just got promoted. The great emperor gets slain. That's what Daniel had prophesied was going to happen to him, that, what the meaning of that handwriting was. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom when he was about 62 years old. If you, if you look that up in history, that's the transition from the Babylonian Empire and they're conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Now biggest empire on earth, because there was already those, those countries, and now they've got an even bigger empire. And Darius is the boss guy. And so what happens is this. Darius set over the kingdom 120 administrators. And to be over the whole, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, so that the administrators might give account to them so the king would suffer no loss. In other words, look after the country. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and administrators. Why? What is the distinguishing thing? Because an excellent spirit was in him. And, he gave, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So that... Right now, Darius is about to make him number two in the world. Then the other, but there's some bad news. Then the other administrators who couldn't see it, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling their, their government affairs. But they couldn't find anything. To criticize or condemn. Why? Because he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Now, he, he, here's the thing. Daniel had this excellent spirit. That excellent spirit, th this is what it means. It means beyond the minimum and the norm, surpassing exceedingly above what is the minimum to make it better. This is the anti, it ain't broke, don't fix it. Daniel is going beyond the minimum to make things better. Now, so when, what can we learn from that story? If we, we are prepared to do 
what we do well and in all that we do, do all things well. What can we learn about excellence? Here's what we can learn about excellence. Firstly, it makes God's favor that rests on us as, as, as Jesus followers work better. There's something about us doing things well that enables God to work through us even more. It leads to promotion in heavenly terms and earthly terms. And it's recognized, now this is the important one, it's recognized who, by those who don't even believe what we do. You see, unbelievers, according to this, have a capacity for recognizing what comes from God. And those who don't know Jesus or just simply looking for somebody to help them, and maybe that's where you are today, just looking for somebody to help you with your life. Those who don't know Jesus and looking for somebody to help them value excellence. They value things being done well. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Paul was a, a guy who initially hated Christians. He was a, a, a Pharisee. And then he had an encounter with Jesus, and he became a Jesus follower. And this is, this is what it says. Um, where have I put it? Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. So in all that we do, we're working for God. How do we want to do that? We want to do it well, don't we? If we're working for God in everything we do, we want to do it well. We want to do it excellently. Now, here's, here's the thing. So I'm going to be honest with you. This is true of nearly every church. It's probably true of you. You're probably tired as a result. But church people, of which I count myself, church people will put up with a lot of things. Church people don't notice most things. Why? Because it's my church, and I like it here, and my friends come here. So we don't notice. We just work round the now that it's theirs. And we don't fix the now that it's not theirs. You see, the thing is that I, I, don't, I don't know about everybody's church experience, but I've been in a few churches like this. There, there are churches that you go in, and may, maybe some of you are thinking, actually, this is faith life. But there's churches that you can go to, and, and you think, right, all these people, they're putting up and, and not noticing anything that's gone on here. But if this was a shop, I wouldn't shop here. If this was a restaurant, there's no way you're getting me to eat here. If this was a company, I wouldn't work for it. And yet, for a lot of people within that church, they don't notice anything, they don't see anything, because it's not broke and there's no need to fix it. Are you kind of understanding it? Because this is our church, and this is the thing that really concerns me, because I love our church. 
I, I love you guys. I care about you guys. I, I spend all my life bothering about you guys. But he said, I don't know what I can't see. And I've been doing this feedback process, as you know, for everybody who's joined the church in the last 12 months, and it's, it's been so enlightening. I've, I've heard lots of things that I have not seen. And as soon as somebody says it, you go, oh, now that it's there, I do see it. But here's the point that I'm making. I'm going to kind of wrap up on this. We will put up with a lot and we won't even notice because we like it here. But visitors will notice. Guests will notice. Unbelievers will notice. People who live in this area will notice. People trying to park on the car park will notice. Those searching for meaning will notice. Because outside the church, we are used to quality. We are used to doing things well. We are, we are used to that. And whilst long-term church people will accept things because this is how we do it here, less-time church people and non-church people who want to believe won't accept those things. So here's my question. Somebody is going to visit your house today at 3 p.m. What do you do when you leave here? Pardon? Clean the house up. What do you do? I, like, we've just had our friends from Preston's Day with us, Mike and Jen. Cheryl, two days we've, she's been sorting our house. Because we've got visitors coming. When you've got visitors coming, you sort the house. You move the boxes out of the hallway. It's gone. <laughs> The stairs are clear at this moment. There is nothing on the stairs waiting to be taken upstairs. The work surface are clear of appliances. We're on a roll. But they've gone now. Guys, we've got to have a vision for people coming into here. People getting saved here. Lives getting set free here. People who are really struggling with, with whatever they are with Jesus here. It's got to be a good place for people to come. Because otherwise, they're not coming back. I am just so blessed by the guys, you guys who've joined the church in the last 12 months. But the truth is, there's 38 welcome packs that never came back again. And I asked myself, why? Why is that? Now, I've got some insight now. I understand a few things. We've got some now that it's theirs. We fixed quite a number of our now that it's theirs since the start of the year. But there's a long way to go. Guys, I'm... I'm so blessed that there's more and more people turning up before the start of service. I don't know if I'm giving away a confidence. I don't think I are because they've given me permission to say it. And maybe not on a Sunday morning, but anyway. 
Um, there was somebody who, who visited our church. They, they had a good experience with our church. I'm not telling you whether they're in the room or not. But everybody I've managed to interview had a good experience. There's 38 people who didn't come back. I can't talk to. I don't know who they are. But this is somebody who had a really good experience with our church, loves our church. The first morning when they came to our church, here's what happened. They walked in at the back, that back corner, having taken ages to find out where our door was, came in and there was seven people there talking to each other and they couldn't work out who was welcome, who was the welcome to them. Eventually, after the conversation had finished, somebody went to them and kind of introduced them, was very friendly, and took them to a refreshment table and then brought them. So this is like somebody turning up at 25 past 10, not early, and they, they sat, and I remember the morning it was, they sat and they sat there and they sat in an entire block of chairs that was totally empty. At quarter to 11, that block of chairs was still empty because we weren't here. And this is what they said to me. If Gwyn had not got out of her seat and walked across and sat next to me and said, hi, I was not coming back. God does things well. We need to do things well. I'm sure, this is my heart. I don't want to do things well for well's sake. You know, when, I, when I've said this to, to Cheryl and talked to Cheryl about it, the, the thing that can come back is, well, we don't like to be, want to be like the world. It's just all about Jesus, and we're kind of happy, and we're just getting along, and, and, you know, and we're just completely oblivious. Because that's true. It is all about Jesus. It is about the Holy Spirit moving on hearts. But he works best in a certain way. You see, when we say, so it's just all about Jesus and we're kind of happy, we're not doing what Jesus asked us to do. We're not living in the image of our Father. So whilst we might not like the word excellence, excellence is doing the best possible thing we can with what we've got. And then not settling for that, pushing ourselves a bit further. Why? Because time is short. And we've got a whole mission field. And some of that mission field might walk through that door next Sunday. Sunday. 